I am Scott, as uh, Kaylin said. Uh, I'm the lead pastor here at Jamestown Harbor, and so glad that you've joined us today. And uh, I'm wondering if I can if I can do a little old man rant uh, this morning. Why does everything need a password these days? Everything. I mean, and I get it. Like two weeks ago, I was complaining about like digital privacy and rewards programs, and now I'm complaining about passwords. But like. Passwords used to be a really simple thing. It was just password, right? That's all you ever had to do. And you could sign into your dial-up or whatever it was. Or or it was just like one, two, three, just whatever you wanted. And then all of a sudden you needed numbers and letters. And so it was password, one, two, three. And that's what you used for everything. But then you had to start like adding symbols, but not those symbols, these symbols, and capital letters, and... Then you had to make sure it's 40 characters long. Now every time I have to like open a new password or something like that, my computer just says, hey, I'm suggesting one for you. You don't even need to remember it. I'll remember it. It's 16 characters long. There's hyphens and everything. Like that just seems crazy, right? And I get it. Like I used to have to do that to look at like my bank account, like when that was online and that's really important stuff. But now every time I want to, buy a fly swatter online, I have to make an account and like lock it down with nuclear launch codes. Why does everything have to have a password? The worst part of it is this need for thousands of passwords in your life. The worst part of that is when you have to change one. You ever run into that, right? You get the dreaded message from, you know, your bank or your credit card or whatever it is. You're like, hey, It's time to change the password. I'm like, no, it's not. I have one uh, one website, a credit card, that every single time I log on, it tells me it's time uh, time to change the password, but it doesn't force me. I just like go back to the home button and I can like skip it altogether. But one day it's going to get me. Um, There was actually a, a recent study about the pain of changing your password, believe it or not. These are the things I think about in a week, just so you know. Um, And it said 38% of people polled think that solving world peace would be a more manageable task than dealing with another set of login passwords. World peace. Uh, And another 38% agreed with this statement. I would rather do house chores, laundry, dishes, cleaning the toilet than have to create another new username or password. It's rough. First world problems, I get it, right? And, and there's plenty of reasons for that, but I think underlying that is just a general distaste we as people have for changing things. One study showed that as many as 71% uh, of people, 71% of people would confess that any sort of variation in their life is hard to cope with. And maybe you're one of these, right? Like, and, and it said eight in 10 admit, eight in 10 adults, 80% of people admit they have missed out on golden opportunities in their past because they are afraid to change. We miss out on stuff because we have this approach to things that change and say, I, I'm not interested. I don't want to change my password. I don't want to change anything. We resist change. And I don't know if you know this or not, but churches resist change too. Uh, churches are historically terrible uh, at, at liking and, and doing change, right? In fact, uh, my own friend and mentor uh, came up with a mathematical formula for churches dealing with change. 
and it's called Doug's Law. Uh, and it basically says this, this is Doug's law. It says the amount of meetings required for a church to make a change is directly proportionate to their age in decades, right? So if your church is 10 years old or less, we just turned eight this, this, uh, this month, right? Um, you can change something with one or less meetings. It happens pretty regularly, right? But if your church is 40 years old, well, that's going to take like four meetings with various committees and leaders and make a change, right? Um, you're going to need four for that, right? If you are a historical church of 100 years or more, then just God help you if you want to change anything, right? In fact, uh, one of our campuses, Harbor Life Church in Granville, when, uh, when that became one of our campus, it was the work of a bunch of elders of a church called Olivet Reformed Church. And they had said, you know what? We are no longer able to fully sustain mission on our own. What if we closed our church and gifted this to you so you could plant a church in it? And so in 2012, that's exactly what we did. And uh, soon after we launched it, one of the, the elders from that previous church was, was in the worship service. And he came up to the pastor. He says, hey, what happened to the coat rack? And our pastor, Rob, at the time said, what coat rack? He's like, in the hallway, there's a coat rack. He's like, oh, yeah, we took it down and painted it and spruced up the place. Isn't it, isn't it great? He said, we've been arguing in our council meetings for nine months about taking down the coat rack. You get it. We dislike change. We like things to stay the way they are. In fact, most of us would rather go through the pain of staying the way things are, even if they're not perfect, than changing for what might be. What's interesting to me is that, as we'll learn today, this idea of change is exactly what makes the church different. So today we're in the middle of this sermon series on what does it mean for the church to matter in the world that we live in today. We started with this idea of uh, of partnership, that it's partnership, not membership or privilege, that, that can be transformative in our culture. And to be those kind of partners together in the church, in Harbor Churches, we believe there are four essential commitments that we make to each other in order to hold us together in a world where nothing stays together. And last week we talked about the very first commitment. And if if you've been around, we we also have these partnership booklets. This is what we use in our partnership classes. We're just kind of doing that from the stage this fall. But uh, as you're following along, all of these commitments are kind of within here. Um, And last week we talked about the first commitment, which was we're committing to saying yes to God. The idea that committing myself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ is more than just some magic words or believing in the right things, that there's a whole lot more to it. And so today we're going to dive into the the second essential commitment uh, to partnering in the gospel, and that commitment is saying yes to taking next steps. Saying yes to taking next steps. We put it this way, our partnership commitment number two is, I commit to take next steps to become more like Jesus and to help others do the same. Or... I commit to change. I commit to being a person who embraces change. And so that's what this commitment is all all about. And as we've been talking about, that makes this commitment really difficult because central to it is this willingness to embrace change. 
And so today I actually want to look at a number of chapters uh, in in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, which catalog what I think seem like disconnected stories. But when I I, um, mark my way through them, I start to see this thread unfold about the people who are following Jesus and who've made this commitment to following Jesus. And so that's what we're going to do today, because through partnering with God, what that begins with saying yes to God, but it doesn't end there. So we're going to take some stories from Matthew chapter 14 through 16. Uh, Mark 8 actually tells the same stories as well. So we might throw in some of his perspective uh, also, but uh, let's start with Matthew 14. And I just want to start with verse 15. As evening approached, the disciples, the those who were following him came to him and said, this is a remote place and all, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish. They answered. And, and Mark actually adds this additional detail in response to the question that Jesus asked, you know, about like, hey, can you give them something to eat? Uh, Mark adds this to their response in Mark 6. They said to him, it would take more than half a year's wages. Are we going to spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? So this is the beginning of what's known as the feeding of the 5,000. It's this miraculous story uh, in Matthew and in Mark where Jesus is walking around in the Galilee, the northern territory in Israel, Jewish territory, people who, who, who know the law, know the text. And, and a bunch of these people start following him as he's teaching like on the hillside. And as Jesus says, it's getting late. And the disciples are worried. Like these people are going to starve if they just keep hanging out with us. Plus, it's been a long day for us. So send them away, Jesus. Uh, and, and Jesus says, no, we're going to feed them. And they take the five loaves and the two fish. And this, this miraculous multiplication of resources where 5,000 people are fed on the hillside that day. Imagine, like, your role as a disciple in that moment, right? You're struggling a little bit. It's getting late. You're getting a little hangry. There's all these people. Where are they going to get this bread? And then this whole miracle thing happens. And suddenly, you're looking at the guy you follow with a little bit different eyes. They start to figure out a little bit more about who Jesus is in this very moment. And that's uh, the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Again, we're kind of just marking our way through some of these stories. The next one is a story where after this feeding, the disciples get in a boat and they head out on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, And and while they do that, Jesus stays up on the hillside and he's kind of praying late into the night. A storm comes up and they're really scared. And uh, what they see is Jesus actually walking out to them on the water in the middle of the storm. And then Matthew 14 picks that up. It says, then Peter, one of the disciples, Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt And then they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshiped him saying, truly you are the son of God. And now this is a really important moment in tracking the the journey of the disciples. Every one of these stories is like links in a chain. 
And this is a really important moment because of that last line. They worshiped him saying, truly you are the son of God. And if you were here last week, you know, this was last week's sermon. This was a moment when they made this realization about who Jesus was. And they named it. They gave themselves to it. They, they've been following Jesus. They love his teaching. But now all of a sudden we see him feed 5,000 people miraculously. We see him walking on the water. I can walk on water because he called me out to do it, right? This is not the same thing as following any other rabbi. This is different. Truly, this is God's son. So they are saying yes to Jesus in this moment. They are saying yes to God. They no longer doubt. They've seen amazing things. They are all in. Then you get an odd next story after this, what I would say is a high point in the life of a disciple, if you're tracking these links. They run into a bunch of religious people. Uh, in Matthew 15, then some Pharisees and teachers of the law, these religious elites, came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Now, they're just not talking hygiene. They're talking about ceremonial cleansing. These ancient laws they had, these rituals that they had when they ate. Jesus replied, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. So he's getting in their face to say, like, look, you've got these rules, these ways, these traditions. And then you have God and you sometimes get the order mixed up. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. Then he quotes this out of Isaiah. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. And then I I love Jesus in this question. Are you so dull? Like, I wonder, is that actually like, could it have been stronger? Like, I don't know. Are you so dull, still so dull? Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these defile you. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile you, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile you. So it's an interesting conversation about ritual after these high miraculous moments. And in the context of these stories, I think it helps point an important distinction out. Because the disciples acknowledge who Jesus is. They make this commitment one, and then immediately they, they, they meet these religious folks who are upset because they're not following the rules. They're not doing things the way we've always done them, right? They aren't ceremonially washing their hands before they eat. Uh, but to them... It's not really about the hands, right? It's about how they understand following God. And to them, following God is doing the right things. Do the right things, then you will be right. Say the right things, then you will be right. And Jesus presses back, right? He says, it's not about following the rules. It's about how you are committing yourself to let God change what's in your heart. 
It's not just about words or rules. It's about how transformation happens in your heart and what comes out of that. And I feel like the story is here for a reason. I feel like the story is here because it's a lesson to these disciples in their journey. Like, yes, you rightly watched me do amazing things and declare me as Lord. Yes, you rightly name like that with me after what you've seen. But this interaction feels like Jesus is making a point saying, yes, that's good. And following me is not just that. Following me is not just about saying the right things or doing the right things. So hang on to that and we'll jump to the next link in the chain. The next story. Because again, Matthew is putting these stories one after another, right? So you feed 5,000, you walk on the water, you make this declaration, you run into this like old ways of doing things conversation. And then we hit Matthew 15, verse 21. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon, which essentially the the Bible is telling us this is a place where non-religious people are. Gentiles, the Bible calls them, not Jewish people. People who don't know the text, who don't know the rules, who don't know the right things to say, all that kind of stuff. That's where they go. And then in verse 32, Jesus calls his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. Uh Uh-oh, starts to sound familiar, right? I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. What's interesting to me is Jesus cares about these people, these non-religious people, these non-Jewish people, right? He has concern about them, but in the story with the religious people in the Galilee, it's the disciples who are worried about them, right? So the disciples have a group of people they care about and a group of people they know. Interesting. So Jesus says they may collapse on their way, and his disciples answered, where can we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? Sound familiar? This is what's known as the story of the feeding of the 4,000. It's in a different location. It happens almost in the same way. They break down into groups, and Jesus takes a small, uh, small bit of food, seven loaves of bread and some fish, and miraculously multiplies it and feeds all of these non-religious uh, people, these Gentiles. So the disciples were following Christ. They've, made this, they've said yes to God. They've made this first commitment. They've declared who Jesus is in their life. They even believe he can do miracles. They've seen him feed the 5,000. They've seen him walk on water. And then this, literally the same scenario as a chapter before. And they ask the exact same question. How are we going to feed all these people? Don't you think one of them might have been like, Hey, can we do the thing we did just like a couple days ago? That was really cool. We got a great opportunity. Let's do it. This seems like the perfect opportunity to do that magic trick, Jesus, right? Not one of them thought that that might be an option. It's fascinating to me. And it feels to me like if I'm in Jesus' shoes, I'm a little bit frustrated. You saw me feed 5,000 people just like this. You saw me walk on water. You heard me talk about how how God's doing new things and we're not just to sit in the way things used to be. And now we've got these 4,000 people. It's even less than last time. And you're still worried about the same problem. 
you still ask the same question. You still are concerned about the same problem we've solved already. You're just worried about the same old things. What good is it to believe that this kind of miracle can happen, that you declare Jesus is Lord, if you're still worried about the same stuff? What good is it to say that we're religious or spiritual or Christian if our hearts are still stuck in the same places they were when we began? What, uh, or, or in reference to the, the Pharisees, what good is it to say the right things, do the right things, declare Jesus is, is Lord if nothing is going to change? So to me, as I'm tracking the links in their change, I look at the disciples and I just go, man, nothing has changed with these guys. They haven't taken any steps beyond the first one. Nothing has changed. You know, it's like, uh, let's pretend this is a situation I made up. But it's like you have a teenager who uh, never puts his dishes in the dishwasher. And you tell him every day, hey, can you put that in the dishwasher? But then the next day you go down in the room and there's just this buffet of dirty dishes. And you're like, hey, can you put that in the dishwasher? Yeah, I know. That's, I know that goes in the dishwasher. Yeah, I know you know that goes in the dishwasher. Let's do that, right? And then, all right. So he gathers up the wheelbarrow full of dirty dishes and puts them in the dishwasher. And then the next day... You know, he has a little bedtime snack of ice cream, brings it up before he goes to bed. And the dishwasher's right here and just sets it on the counter, like mere inches, like to open and put in, right? Right? Again and again and again. Like, it's not enough for me for you to tell me, I know where the dishes belong. I know what we do with dirty dishes. Like, if that's where we are, we haven't really gained a lot of traction since when you were five. Right? If nothing changes, then nothing's going to change. The first step is admitting you have a problem, right? But it's not the only step. And so in our marriage, with our children, with ourselves, we wake up day after day, and we have these places where it just feels like nothing has seemed to change. So making this first commitment we talked about last week, just the initial commitment of saying, I'm saying yes to God, should not be the end of our story. It should not leave us with nothing else changing. That's why we have this second commitment of saying, I'm going to say yes to taking next steps that transform me. Uh, Chapter 16 continues the story. So we had the feeding, we had the walking on the water, we had the experience with the people who like things the way they should always be. We had another experience with feeding and we kind of went, I don't know, I don't know what to do about this, nothing's changed. And then in Matthew 16, it says, Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi and he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? Who do other people say that I am? We've kind of been out there mingling with lots of people. Lots of people have seen lots of things. What are they saying about me? Who am I? They replied, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus said? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered. He steps to the front, probably the oldest of the 12 disciples. Uh, In fact, Peter might have been the only one over the age of 18 who was following Jesus. 
Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Right? I know we said that like two chapters ago. It seems like this is a big deal to say, but they've already kind of acknowledged that. And he just repeats it. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Links in a chain. I follow their story, and I'm like, Jesus takes them back to step one. It's like, all right, let's, let's talk about who am I? Right, let's go back to that. Remember when you all worshipped me and declared me I was this, truly the son of God? Let's go back to that. But he pushes them a little farther, and he says, I... I know what other people say about me, but what do, what do I mean to you? What does this actually mean in your life? When you declare who I am, Peter, or James, or John, or whoever, what does that mean to you? And Peter gives the right answer, but Jesus sort of pushes him a little further, right? And then uh, he responds in verse 21 with, from that time on, Once we had clarity on this conversation, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And this, for me, is the crux of the disciples' experience in following Jesus. Yes, it's declaring who he is. Yes, it's watching uh, him do these amazing things. But this is where Jesus helps his disciples see that knowing who Jesus is is only the first step. You knew who I was before. You knew what I could do before. You worshiped me as Lord, but still nothing changed for you. In this moment, I believe Jesus is inviting them to make another commitment. This commitment to transformation. This commitment to taking next steps for change in their life. But in order for that to happen, in order uh, for, for any of that to take place, we have to be willing to be transformed. We have to begin the process of denying ourselves to die to ourselves again and again and again to be transformed because here's the thing about following Jesus is that disciples of Jesus are a people of death and resurrection. There's a death on the cross and a weekend in the tomb and and, and a morning uh, of resurrection. And lots of us would love to go from the cross to resurrection without the pain of death, but that is not how it works. So Jesus says, that's what it means. We are people who are committed to things changing, to dying to ourselves And what's interesting is that this isn't new in the Bible. This is all over in the text. Paul writes about it in Romans, in Romans 8. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And then the verse Melissa read in our our call to worship earlier, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The way we participate in God's mission is by a commitment to being changed, by a commitment to being transformed. But the scripture that stands out most to me is 
been my uh, long-running favorite verse in the Bible, and, and particularly out of the message translation of Romans 8, verse 29. God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. The son stands first in the line of humanity he restored. And we see the original and intended shape of our lives there in him. There is something that God has in mind for you to become. There is a picture, there is an image, there is a shape of who you are to become. And it's Christ, believe it or not. Which means we have not arrived. That we are not done moving towards that. Commitment one, making saying yes to God is not a finish line. It's our first step. And what holds us together as a people partnering in the gospel is that we are committed to being people who change in ourselves and a willingness to help others change and be more like Jesus. We are committed to change. Which of all the commitments we can talk about and the commitments we'll talk about in the series, this one stands out to me because I know a lot of people who would call themselves a Christian but are not committed to transformation. I know a lot of people who might have been committed to that kind of change in their life at one time, but they have stopped and they no longer are. I know many people who've never even started. I know people who think that maybe if I just go to church more or just read the Bible more or do all the things the Pharisees tell me I need to do, that I'll automatically be good. I'll be different. In my opinion, most people don't need another Bible study. They need people in their lives who are helping them ask, what is God shaping me into today? If we want the church to matter today, be relevant in the world we live in, that it must be filled with people who are committed to changing who they are as they follow Christ. It must be filled with people who are committed to transformation. It must be filled with people who are willing to deny themselves, to put their current self to death, in order to become what God is actively shaping them into. Which unfortunately puts us kind of right back where we started. Change is scary. Change is hard. We don't like it. It doesn't come easy to us. And I would say that that never goes away. That is always part of the journey. Uh, But maybe I can give you just a frame for change that might help you take some next steps. And then uh, we'll we'll close the message uh, soon after that. But uh, I kind of looked up this uh, idea of change and how does it happen? Because certainly we'd love to like change in an instant. We'd love to wake up one morning and think, I'm just going to start eating better. And then we just do it, right? Uh, We'd love to decide I'm going to stop drinking and then we just do it. But we all know that's not how change works. It's not a one-time event. It's not a singular action. Change is always a process. And I think sometimes the more we understand the process, the the more we can engage the process in our lives. So I want to give you five steps on the journey of change that you might be able to take with you. The first step uh, in the change process is usually marked by like a lack of awareness that we need to change. It's a stage known as pre-contemplation, which means before we're thinking about it. Uh, This is when we fail to see something needs to change. Perhaps there's somebody in our life 
that thinks or sees or tells us something should change in our life. But we don't necessarily buy into that just yet. We're not thinking about it. And this is what I love about this stage. Because even if you don't want to change, you're already in the process of change. Right? You're already in the process. Which makes jumping to the next step a little easier, right? Because you're already in it. So the next step is contemplation. We had before thinking about it. Now we're thinking about it. Contemplation. It's when we become aware of something needs to change. Maybe for you today, God's speaking something into your heart saying, You're moving into step two here. Something in your life could do with some change. We might be considering sometime in the next six months, but we're not ready to do anything about it right now. Uh, People can be in this stage for months or years or longer. Then you move to the third step, the third stage of, of change, and it's called preparation. This is where we start making a commitment to, okay, something's gonna change. And, and I'm going to take some action within the next month or so. And uh, I'm going to adjust some small things in my life in order to start the process. Baby steps to change. That's, part, that's step three, right? And after that preparation stage comes the action stage where we actually start to change something. We start to change the way we eat. We start to change the way we think or act uh, or interact. We start actually trying this new way of living and thinking and being on for size. You haven't done it yet, right? You're not done because there's a fifth stage, which is maintenance, where it's our life now lives into the change regularly, where we sustain these changes as we go into our lives. I don't know how often I've tried to change something. Maybe I've even gotten to step four and it just hasn't stuck. Step five. So these are five steps to change. Maybe it helps you to see that we break, you can break it into steps. But the point is, change doesn't just happen to you. And it's not instantaneous. It is a process. It doesn't happen because you just want it hard enough. It doesn't happen because uh, you're just better than other people. Change doesn't just happen. It is a commitment. It takes a commitment to wake up every single day And as we like to say around here, take a next step. Take a next step. And again, that's why our partnership commitment number two is I commit to take next steps to become more like Jesus and help others to do the same, to participate in the shaping that God has going on for me. So today, the simple question for you is what is your next step? If you believe that God has an image he is shaping you into, then be committed to that transformation process and take a step into it. And today, let me give you a little permission. There are no wrong next steps today. Maybe tomorrow there might be, I don't know. But today, if God is is, is impressing upon you, like there is a next step, no matter how little, no matter how big, no matter how different, it's not the wrong next step. And taking that next step together is partly what makes the church matter, that we are a people who are committed and bound together by a desire to change. In fact, uh, we talk about this card almost every single week, this connection card on the back uh, of this card is something that says, what's your next step? Because every single time we gather together, we want you to feel like you have the opportunity to name that. 
Uh, and we give you some options about what that might, next step might be. Uh, it give, gives you some options to say, I would actually love to invite someone into the conversation with me and help me discern what that next step is. Maybe you just want to share that with someone. That's what this card is for, and it's always available to you. 80% of people say that they have missed out in their life on golden opportunities because they are unwilling to change. And my hope is that Doug's law does not apply to you. That the older you get, the more decades you put uh, behind you, the more willing you will be to be shaped by the Lord. That it won't take 10 extra meetings for you to get to the start line. In a world that's constantly moving and constantly changing, I believe now more than ever, our church has something to offer the world. And that if a group of people partner together in the gospel, our communities will get better. Our world will change. And if that's going to happen, then what holds us together is a common commitment to God as well as a common commitment to taking next steps towards change, towards looking like Jesus. And so today my hope is that you'll begin to make room in your life. Not just for the right words or the right rules, but for something to change and for a next step to take place. That you would make room in your life for God to shape you along the lines of his son. Where the original and intended shape of your life begins. Let's pray together. Lord God, I'm grateful that um, we are not just static people who uh, plug ourselves into the equation of the world and seek to do the right things and be good people, God, but that we are, in fact, your beloved children. God, I am grateful today that you have an intended shape of our lives. Because most days, Lord, I don't. I don't know what I'm supposed to be. I don't know what I'm supposed to become, but you do. And you have a desire for me and for all of us to become more and more like your son every single day. So God, I pray for the grace and the courage for us to take a next step. God, you know what that step is for every single one of us. I don't. God, may you impress upon us the invitation to look more like your son. May you uh, illuminate the next step on the path we have towards you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.